0: 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21, what we have seen last week is the admonition of Peter to followers of Christ that they should live in a manner that is above reproach. You'll remember that he said, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. That is to live in a manner that is above reproach in front of the world. He gave specific things to do, abstaining from flesh, uh, submitting to civil and social authorities, things of that nature. And now this morning, he continues with that same train of thought. This is exactly what Peter was saying last week. He's just finishing it. He's still talking about living with excellence, living in a manner that is above reproach. Only this time, he's going to point us to a pattern a pattern we see in Jesus that leads us to excellence. He's going to talk about the protector who sets a pattern. And so today that's what we want to talk about. The pattern of our protector. Living above reproach, following the pattern of our protector. So let's look and see what the scriptures have to say here. 1 Peter 2, beginning of verse 21. For to this you were called... Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that you should follow his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. That we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now returned, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So Peter has set the tone. In the midst of suffering trials and hardship, in the midst of enduring things that are unpleasant, you are called to live a life of excellence, to live in a manner that is above reproach. And he says, I'll tell you how to do it. You follow an example that has been set for you. The first thing he points out to us this morning is the pattern of excellence. You see that right off the bat. We have a pattern of excellence. That is, we have one who has exemplified living above reproach. We have one who has set the tone, set the pattern, set the example, lived it for us that we can look to him. You see, we are called to live above reproach because the one we're called to serve is above reproach. Think back over the last couple of weeks. Remember that we are called specifically to something. Remember that in the face of difficulties, hardships, and sufferings, we are called to respond with excellence. We have to be prepared to conduct ourselves in this way. Why? Because you've been called to it. Verse 21, for this you were called, for unto this you were called. You were called to do something you are called to be distinct and separate by grace through faith. You've been given a distinct position in Christ and in that position, you are called to live above reproach to live with excellence. You have been called his own special people separate from the world. You have been called to be a citizen of heaven, a stranger and pilgrim traversing in this earth. You have been called even to be an enemy of the world. Remember what Jesus pointed out in John 17 when he said, Father, I've given them your word. I've given them your truth. They have received your truth. They have accepted your truth. They live out their truth. And what did he say? And now the world hates them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. You see, we're called to be distinct, to be separate, to live out the truth of Jesus, to stand firm on the truth of Jesus, and living out the truth... Living in his righteousness, pursuing his righteousness, puts us at odds with the world. It can bring persecution. In fact, Paul told Timothy that all those who seek to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. Yet you're called to do that living above reproach with excellence. I want us just to remember that the world system rages against the kingdom of Christ. And in doing so, the world system finds followers of Christ offensive. Yet in response to any persecution or suffering levied at true disciples of Christ, our response must be nothing less than maintaining excellence in our actions, our attitudes, and our words. We must be above reproach in all that we do. That's what Peter's admonishing us to do. And he says, but here's how you do it. Follow the pattern that's already established. Just follow the example." The examples there emulate the example and you can do it. You see, we have the perfect example of excellent conduct. He's lived it. He's done it. It's written for us. We can follow it. We have the perfect example of excellent conduct. We have that example in the life of Jesus Christ, in the character of Christ, in the grace, the love, the goodness of Christ. When you think about it, There has been no hardship and no pain like that of our Lord Jesus. For Jesus to fulfill his role as Messiah and to accomplish the redemptive plan of God, he had to traverse the path of hardship, pain, and suffering. He knows persecution. He knows pain. He knows suffering. And he lived it exemplified excellence in it. He has set the pattern. In fact, think about just how unfair this really was. Jesus, who is perfectly sinless, perfect in every way, was reviled and suffered unjustly. Yet, in experiencing the most horrific and the most humiliating abuse, he responded with grace, maintaining a manner of life that was above reproach. He has set the example for us. He is the example we follow to live a life of excellence. So let's just look at this example today. If you'll note, there, verse 23, verse 23 reveals how Jesus responded with suffering or to suffering with excellence being above reproach in all that he did. Notice there verse 23. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. There's the pattern. There's the pattern we follow to live with excellence in the midst of suffering, trial, and hardship. We follow the example already set. The pattern is there. Look at what the pattern is. Look at what the example is. The first thing mentioned what did Jesus do to live above reproach in the midst of being persecuted and abused and mistreated and suffering so immensely? How did he live in a way that was excellent and above reproach? Well, the first thing mentioned, the first thing he did, the first part of the pattern, he did not revile. He did not revile. That word revile refers to abuse, to accuse, to act profanely against someone. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus. He was abused, he was accused, and everyone acted profanely against him. God in human form being blasphemed in the most vile ways. Yet he did not revile in return. Being mocked, being tortured, he never responded with anger or retaliation. In fact, think about how this played out. There he is, God himself being accused of blasphemy at an unlawful and fraudulent trial. He's being slandered. His character is being defamed in the worst ways. And you remember what he did? He remained silent. He just kept his mouth shut. But when the high priest invokes an oath before God upon him, you see this in Matthew 26, when he says, before the living God, you answer. So now it's now a matter of God's honor. So now he must respond. In Matthew 26, he responds. And when you read it, here's what you see. A Jesus who's being accused, who's being slandered, who's being abused, who responds very calmly and peaceably towards his abusers. He did not revile in return. He goes before Pilate, he's being questioned before Pilate. You know that whole interchange there and you look at this, go go to John 18 and look at it sometime And what you see in Jesus is nothing but a very graceful demeanor towards the one who was going to hand him over to a Roman death. He did not revile in return. How do I face suffering and hardship and pain and persecution and do it with excellence? I follow this pattern. I follow this example. I do not respond to abuse with abuse. I do not respond to hatred with hatred. I do not respond to slanderous and grievous words with more slanderous and grievous words. You see, we cannot levy abusive words or deeds towards those who abuse us. If I'm to live above reproach, conduct myself with excellence, I don't retaliate. I demonstrate grace. And a peaceful demeanor. In fact, in the most practical response, sometimes I just simply bite my tongue and keep my mouth shut. That's probably one of the biggest lessons most Christians could learn. And keeping your mouth shut, by the way, involves Facebook and Twitter. What I must do so that I don't revile those who are reviling me, those who are abusing and accusing and acting profanely towards me, I ask the Holy Spirit to remove bitterness from my heart so that I'm not tempted to respond with anger and bitterness in my actions, attitudes, and words. It has to be a supernatural act because in my flesh, oh, I'm not going to take it. But through the Spirit of Christ in me, I can follow his pattern. He can remove the bitterness. He can subdue the anger and help me respond with grace and peacefulness in the midst of what's happening. And why do I want to do that? Because I need to live above reproach. I'm called to conduct myself with excellence. How can I represent the gospel of Christ if I'm not going to emulate him in these ways? In fact, the quickest way to blow my testimony and walk all over the gospel is to respond to my abuser with abuse. And so I'm called not to revile. But there's a second part of the pattern. Still there in verse 23. It says, he did not threaten. He did not threaten. Now consider what's happening and who it's happening to. The worst Humiliation, shame, and suffering, the worst persecution of the grandest kind in the history of the world is happening because it's happening to the sinless, perfect Son of God. This is Jesus. Jesus, who is God incarnate. Jesus, who is God in human form, walking upon the earth for the purpose of completing the redemptive plan of the Father. That's who this is happening to. This is the one with supreme authority, In fact, Jesus very plainly says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, right? I mean, this is the supreme authority. This is happening to him. And he could have decreed great peril over his abusers. He could have said, go ahead and hit me one more time. And as soon as I snap my fingers, you'll melt like candle wax, just try me. He could have said, go ahead and slander my name one more time and I'll make it so your tongue will never work again. He could have said, look, I'm fixing to call down the army of heaven and annihilate you. I'm going to call down fire and burn you up. You don't know who you're tangling with. You better watch out. He could have simply spoken in his authority and made everyone die. You get a glimpse of that in John, by the way, when they come to arrest him. Who are you looking for? Jesus Nazareth? I am he, and everyone just falls down. That kind of power could have annihilated all these people, yet he did not threaten in return. He responded with excellence. He responded with excellence. In fact, the only response Jesus gave to those who abused him The only response, you see it in Luke 23. Father, will you forgive them? They have no clue what they're doing. His only response to his abusers is to pray for their forgiveness, not threaten them. He prays for them. He prays for their souls. He prays for their well-being if I'm going to conduct myself above reproach in the midst of hardship and pain, in the midst of affliction or those who persecute me, I cannot respond with threats. I have to follow the example of Christ. I don't respond with threats, I respond with prayer. I respond with prayer. That's the example set before us. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, teaching his followers, said this. He said, look, I want you to love your enemies, and I want you to bless those who curse you. I want you to do good for those who hate you, and I want you to pray for those who spitefully use you. That's how I want you to respond to this world. So in the midst of being persecuted, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trying to live out righteousness in the world and experiencing affliction because of it, how do I respond with excellence? Well, I don't threaten retaliation. I don't threaten harm. I don't say, oh, you're going to get a divine payback. God will get you one of these days. I simply respond with the love of Christ. I respond with his blessing over those who curse me. I respond with His goodness in the lives of those who hate me, and I respond by praying over the souls of those who spitefully use me. How can I conduct myself above reproach in a world that is in opposition to my faith? Pray for their salvation. Do good among them in the name of Christ. Demonstrate His grace and His love in all that you do. Do not threaten but respond with his goodness and his love and his grace. So that's the second part of the pattern we have to follow to live with excellence. There's a third part of the pattern. Once again, still in verse 23, it says, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. Here's what he did. Jesus, he did... Commit himself to God the Father. He did not revile, he did not threaten, but he did commit himself to God the Father. Jesus trusted God the Father's plan and purpose in the midst of the greatest suffering ever known to anyone. In the midst of being accused and abused and slandered, he trusted in the Father's plan and purpose for all of it. In the midst of suffering, In the greatest physical sense, the most emotional sense, and even spiritually for us, he trusted the Father's plan and purpose. In fact, I think he continued moment by moment to trust God's purpose, moment by moment to trust God's plan. As each part of this terrible thing progressed, as his disciples abandoned him, he was trusting God's plan. As he's being led away like a criminal, when he was being accused and slandered, when he was being beaten and abused to the point he couldn't even be recognized. In each moment, I think he was continually saying, Father, I'm trusting your plan. Father, I'm trusting your purpose. In the midst of the pain, in the midst of the suffering, I'm trusting you, Father. I'm trusting your plan. I'm trusting your purpose. I'm trusting that the glory that will come is greater than the suffering I'm experiencing now. God, I trust your purpose. God, I'm trusting that your plan will cause something and get something and do something so much greater than what I'm experiencing in this moment. God, I trust your plan. I trust your purpose. The Bible says he committed himself to him who judges righteously. He trusted God's righteousness to make this come around the way it should. He trusted God in his righteousness, the father's righteousness to make it all turn out like it needed to for the glory of God and for the salvation of the world. Alan Stubbs, in his commentary on 1 Peter, writes about this. Here's what he says. In the unique instance of our Lord's passion, when the sinless one suffered as if he were the worst of sinners and bore the extreme penalty of sin, there is a double sense in which he acknowledged God as the righteous judge. On one hand, because voluntarily and in fulfillment of God's will, he was taking the sinner's place and bearing sin. He did not protest at what he had to suffer. Rather, he consciously recognized that it was the penalty righteously due to sin. So he handed himself over to be punished. He recognized that in letting such shame, pain, and curse fall upon him, the righteous God was judging righteously. On the other hand, because he himself was sinless, he also believed that in due time, God... As the righteous judge would vindicate him as righteous and exalt him from the grave and reward him for what he had willingly endured for other sakes. Do so by giving him the right completely to save them from the penalty and the power of their own wrongdoing. See, Jesus knew God's plan is to accomplish so much bigger and so much greater than the suffering I'm enduring. I'll trust the Father's plan in the midst of my suffering. My friends, when we entrust ourselves to God as our righteous judge, we're following Christ's example. We're doing so by looking to God for our vindication, our exaltation, and our reward in enduring suffering. We're saying, God, I don't understand it, but I trust you. And I'm trusting you to bring about my vindication and at the end my glorification and my final reward when it's all said and done. I'm trusting you, God. You see, to conduct ourselves above reproach, we must commit ourselves to our righteous God, our Heavenly Father, trusting fully in His plan and purpose, even when that means enduring suffering. Faithful living in pursuit of His holiness, believing that, yes, He's at work according to His divine purpose, even when I don't sense it or can't figure it out. Even when I have those questions like, God, what are you doing? God, how is this going to play out? God, how can this ever turn out anything but bad? Even when I can't figure it out, I'm still trusting in his plan and purpose as the righteous God, my heavenly father, who's going to work according to his righteousness. We trust God who judges righteously. We're committed to him and we commit our lives to him as righteous judge, trusting that he will bring about our vindication, our justice, our exaltation, our reward in due time. You see, Jesus lived with excellence in the midst of the most terrific event that's ever happened to someone. He did that by not reviling, not threatening, and committing himself to God as the righteous judge, trusting God's plan and purpose. That's the pattern we have. To live above reproach in this world, we don't revile, we don't threaten, we simply commit ourselves to our righteous heavenly father. But there's kind of an ultimate summation of this. There's an ultimate example of excellence in conduct described here. You see, Jesus did not revile. He did not threaten. He committed himself to the heavenly father as a righteous judge. But, but what's the culmination of that? What's the big description of that? What's that all mean? Well, you see it in verse 22. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. See, here's the other thing about Jesus in the example, the pattern he's left. He was sinless. He was sinless upon this earth. He's sinless upon his throne. He is completely and totally perfect. You see, the summation of how Jesus responded to persecution and abuse and suffering is simply this. He remained sinless. He remained perfect. His response remained completely and totally perfect. He did not revile. He did not threaten. He committed himself to God. What was the result? He remained sinless. He remained perfect. That's the example he's left for us. The example of Christ, the example he's left, the pattern we have, is such an important pattern for us to follow because he was sinless. Completely perfect. It's a perfect example to follow, a perfect pattern to live by. The reality is I can try my best to set a pattern for my children to emulate and live up to, but it'll be flawed somewhere. We can identify some type of hero in our culture who exemplifies such great character, and they can set a pattern for people to follow, but it'll be flawed somewhere. But the pattern set for us is a pattern of perfection, sinless perfection set by the sinless one. That's why this pattern is so important, because of the perfection of Jesus. And so ultimately, the standard for following Christ is to pursue his holiness. How do I live above reproach? How do I conduct myself with excellence in this world? I pursue the holiness of Jesus Christ. I set my goal on his sinless perfection and strive for it. That is my goal. I strive to respond to the world so that my response is sinless before the world. That's my goal. That's what I strive to do. That's how I live with excellence. To respond to this world so that my response is sinless, perfect, above reproach, excellent. Now, I understand that we may not perfectly obtain such a lofty goal. But nonetheless, we are to respond to persecution, to suffering, to hardships, to the world in general, with an effort to obtain what Ephesians 4.13 says to obtain to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. There's the standard, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What do you base your actions on? The standard of Jesus. What do you base your words on? The standard of Jesus. What do you judge your attitudes by? The standard of Jesus and nothing less. Oh, but I can't attain perfection. You got to lower the bar. Oh, no, 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 no. The bar set where the bar set. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. We don't lower the bar, we try to live up to the bar. That's your goal. How do you live above reproach? How do you live a life of excellence? You pursue the high standard of Christ in your life with every word, with every action, with every attitude. You pursue His holiness. That's how you live above and beyond. That's how you're above reproach. You're called to walk just as He walked. Paul said you overcome evil with good, you live out his character in front of the world. You do your best to live out the holiness of Christ in all that you do, pursuing his holiness in all you do. See, that's the pattern we've been given. But how in the world can I follow a pattern of excellence when I'm flawed? Good question. That depends on the second thing uh, Peter points out here, because he points out something. He shows us a pattern for excellence, but then he explains the propitiation that brings excellence. See, that my excellent conduct really doesn't rest in my own ability. It's available because there's been a propitiation that will bring excellence into my life. The reality is this. Jesus has removed God's holy and divine wrath from me when I came to him in repentance and faith. God's wrath has been removed. The condemnation of sin has been removed. Christ has removed that which has separated me from God and given me new life in him. Because he is my propitiation, I can pursue excellence. Let's see how Peter points this out. Verse 21. For this you were called because what? Christ also suffered for us. Some of your version says you. Christ also suffered for you. He suffered in our place to remove the wrath of God from us. Jesus suffered. In fact, Jesus Christ's suffering is a result of our sin and it required his substitutionary death on the cross to pay for our sin. That's how this all played out. The Bible says in Romans that God has committed his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. It's not a real popular thing to talk about the wrath of God in churches anymore. But here's the reality. Our God is holy and just, and he pours out wrath upon sin. Those who are without a relationship with Jesus, who are dead in their sin, are condemned. Jesus said it already in John 3. They are already condemned to the wrath of God. Yet Jesus suffered for us to remove that wrath from us. He's our propitiation that brings excellence. The shame, the humiliation, the suffering, the condemnation, all that Jesus endured on the cross, that belongs to us. That humiliation, that's my humiliation. That pain, that's my pain. That suffering, that's my suffering. Why? Because it was my sin, your sin. He suffered for us, He stepped into our place. He suffered that we would not have to suffer. He endured punishment so that we could escape punishment. He died death, the death we deserve, that we might have eternal life. You see, Jesus has stepped in and suffered for us. Continue this thought, it continues on in verse 24. Who Himself bore our sins in his own body. Jesus bore our sins in his own body. That word bore means to take upon oneself a heavy burden. Jesus took upon himself the heavy burden of our sin, a burden we could not carry, a burden no one can carry, Yet Jesus took upon himself the burden of our sin. He willingly, he himself took it. He willingly took upon himself the heavy burden of our sin, meaning he took upon himself the consequence of our sin, the punishment of our sin, the condemnation of our sin, the wrath that our sin brings, Jesus bore in his own body. He did that for us. The book of Hebrews tells us that he was offered to bear the sins of many. Oh, Jesus died on a cross and he was buried and rose again. Happy Easter. No, 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 no. He was bearing your sin. And the wrath of God, the full anger and vindication, judgment and condemnation of God's fury was put upon Jesus so you wouldn't have to experience it. He bore your sin in his own body. He bore the wrath of God in what he did. How heavy is the weight of sin? I really don't know exactly, but Romans 8 says it's so heavy, the entire earth groans under its weight. He bore the weight of our sin, a weight that only he could bear. When we talk about the cross and we talk about the sacrifice of Jesus, when we talk about he died on the cross... You need to remember your sin put him there, and God's wrath would be upon you if he had not. The eternal wrath of God experienced by Jesus so that you could eternally escape the wrath of God. He endured the wrath to liberate you from that wrath. And burying our sins in his own body on the cross, he removed God's wrath from us. He removed eternal judgment from us. That is that word propitiation. And because of that, we can live in excellence. Galatians 3.13 says, Jesus has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is whoever hangs on the tree. He took the curse. He bore it. So that we can escape it and live in excellence through Him. Jesus bore our sins, He died in our place that He might redeem us from the curse of sin. He has purchased our forgiveness. To reconcile us unto God, to put us back in relationship with God, to reconcile us. Reconciliation is making one with God by removing that which causes hostility with God. In other words, we cannot be reconciled to God unless someone removes what has separated us from God. And that's what Jesus has done. He has removed the separation that sin and the condemnation of sin brings. He has stepped in and he has removed that which is called hostility between us and God. How did he do it? He bore our sins in his own body. He offered himself as a substitutionary sacrifice to pay for our sin. He paid God's holy and righteous requirement for sin to be forgiven when he shed his own blood. And now he has removed sin and the suffering sin, the punishment of sin that has separated us from God, that he could reconcile us unto God, put us in right relationship with God. You see, my friends, because of his substitutionary death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, we can be made right with God. We can enjoy eternal life. And eternal life isn't somewhere off in the distance. Eternal life is here and now, and it just doesn't end. In John 17, Jesus gives a description of eternal life. And paraphrasing what he says, I would describe it this way Jesus says, eternal life is to have a deep, meaningful, personal relationship with God. That starts here and now. That's when you come to repentance. That's when you call out in faith to Jesus. That's when you say, Jesus, I admit I'm a sinner. I know I can't fix this, but I'm going to turn from all of that, and I'm going to turn from my self-righteousness. I'm going to give up on everything except you, Jesus, because I believe you died on the cross for me, and I believe you have risen again. So, Jesus, right now, I'm asking, would you forgive me? Would you come into my life? Would you be my Savior and have control of everything? Would you do that for me, Jesus? I trust you when you do that the Bible says he gives you eternal life that is a deep meaningful relationship with God it's an ongoing personal relationship with God you see true Christianity is never religion it's relationship relationship with God through faith in Jesus and that starts now and it just never ends that's why it's eternal life That's what Jesus gives, and it's only through Jesus. It's only through faith in Jesus. How can I live a life of excellence? Because Jesus took my sin and the condemnation of sin when he died on the cross. And when I come to faith in him, he imparts eternal life, a life in which I can live in excellence. That's how it's possible. Peter points out one more thing. And that's the protector who leads in excellence. You see, we have a pattern set by Jesus. We find that Jesus is our propitiation, the one who enables us to live in excellence, but he's also our protector who will lead us in excellence. You'll notice there in verse 25, Jesus is called the shepherd and overseer of our souls. We're familiar with shepherd. Overseer there means guardian. You see, Jesus is the shepherd and overseer of our souls. It is only he who has died in our place and risen again to impart eternal life and now is invested in us as our shepherd. In John chapter 10, Jesus talks about being the shepherd. In verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. That's what he's done. And he's imparted his life to us. And now it is only Jesus who truly seeks to shepherd us spiritually, who has rescued us spiritually, who tends to us spiritually, who cares for us, who protects us as his followers. He shepherds us day by day, moment by moment. But here's the thing. Without Jesus, we're just like sheep gone astray. That's what verse 25 says there, right? aimlessly wandering with no purpose, stumbling into danger, unable to live the life that God intends for us to live. Yet, in fellowship with Jesus, it's totally different. When I'm in tune and communion with Jesus, when I'm following Jesus, living with him and walking with him day by day, he leads me to live a life of excellence. He leads me to live a life above reproach. You see, in fellowship with Jesus as our shepherd, we live lives of excellence. That's how we do it. We follow his pattern. The pattern applies when we've come to faith and he's given us eternal life, the life that enables us to live excellence, and then we let him lead us day by day in the paths of excellence. Notice notice there that the scripture says, We're like sheep gone astray, but have now returned. Have now returned is is, is an inference to a repentance, to a coming back to Jesus, to turn from sin, to turn from the world, to follow the great shepherd, to follow him, to interact with him, to be at the point in your spiritual life where you've come to a saving faith and now you're going to walk with Jesus moment by moment, day by day, and you're going to let him lead you into excellence. In that same chapter of John, Verse 27, Jesus says this, My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. What does it mean for Jesus to be your shepherd? It means you hear his voice because he knows you personally and you follow him. You follow him moment by moment, day by day. Well, how does he lead you? Where does he lead you? Well, Psalm 23 talks about that. Everyone pretty much knows Psalm 23. In Psalm 23, in verse 3, it says that the Lord leads us down the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. For his glory, he leads us in paths of righteousness. Well, what's a path of righteousness? Well, paths of righteousness is synonymous simply with living a life that is excellent. Living in a manner that is above reproach. Living the life he's calling us to live. When I come to faith in Jesus and I commune with him and follow him as my shepherd, he leads me in excellence. I don't have to wonder about it. I don't have to stumble through the world. I don't have to figure out which way I just follow him. He's a shepherd. Where the shepherd leads, I go. And he always leads me in paths of righteousness, to live a life of excellence. That's what he does. And that's why, that is why he suffered. That's why he bore our sins. Refer back to verse 24. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. Jesus bore our sins that we could live a life of excellence. It says we die to sin. That means to be put away from, to depart from, to cease in existing. In other words, Jesus has made it possible for us to be put away from sin's control, to depart from the slavery of sin, to cease to exist under the carnal nature we were plagued with before. Jesus has liberated us from that. By his death and his resurrection, he has separated us from sin, the condemnation it brings, and the control it has over us we can follow him in paths of righteousness. See, I think in the bottom line at the end of the day where the rubber hit the road, it just means this. The substitutionary death of Jesus and our personal, our personal ongoing fellowship with him provides the freedom we need to live righteously and live lives of excellence. So I have to ask you this morning, are you living a life of excellence? Are you living in a manner that is above reproach? Are you following his pattern? Have you come to understand that he is the propitiation that brings excellence? In other words, through faith in him, you are removed from God's wrath and imparted with the life it requires to live in excellence. Is your protector leading you? Are you fellowshipping, communing with him day by day, so he can lead you in excellence? You see, you're on this path somewhere. You're you're in this course somewhere. You're in the game. There are no spectators here. You're either on course with Jesus or you're not because you don't know him. You're either walking with him closely, abiding in excellence. Or you're stumbling off bringing discredit to the gospel you claim to know because you're not in close communion with him. You're either following his pattern of excellence or you're just trying to do it your own way. But you're in the game doing something. I want you to, as Paul said, run the race to win. Follow his pattern. Personally know him as your propitiation. And then walk with him as your protector as he leads you. I want you to bow your head and close your eyes. We're going to have an invitation and I want you to respond to God however it is God leads you to do so. Father, I'd ask now, Lord, that you would move among us and that you would give us freedom. Lord, I'd ask that through your presence and through your power you bind Satan and do not allow him to hinder any one person at all from not responding to you how you are calling them to respond. Impart courage and boldness Lord, by your Holy Spirit, speak to each one of us today and draw us close to your presence. We give this time to you now in the name of Jesus.